Hello and welcome to the Back Check, the Hockey History Podcast. This is a special pandemic edition. Um, we are, uh, it is roughly 100 years since the last world-altering pandemic. Um, there have been pandemics in the interim, but human- they weren't either very big or they were diseases that weren't very um as communicable or uh they were or things we were prepared for so um in honor i guess honor is not the right word but uh (laughs) because of the situation we currently find ourselves in with covid19 we are going to talk about the spanish flu of uh 1918 to 20 ish and how it affected um the 1918-1919 nhl season and the stanley cup so Oh, yes, I'm Riley, and there's Bill. Hey, how you doing? Good, how are you? I'm neglecting my my hosting duties. It's terrible. Yeah, no, I know. Uh, Well, it's it's all right. It's a different episode from what we normally do, so it's a little bit weird. My rhythm's Um, off. Yeah, well, that's it. Usually usually you're the one with all the notes in front of you, and this time it's me. (laughs) So, um, yeah, so we we thought, uh, you know, I, I was talking to Riley about this, and we just thought, you know, like it's a pretty big coincidence that almost exactly a hundred years later, sort of the same things going on in the world. And, you know, I obviously once the season got canceled, um, I was not the only journalist that thought of this. There are many, many hockey articles you could go and read about when the Stanley cup got canceled. And a lot of them came out in early March, as soon as the NHL announced they were canceling the season. Um, And a lot of them are very good articles too. So I, I read through a whole bunch of those. I, I had the idea before I realized how many people had written about it. And then I was like, well, this makes this makes my research life a lot easier. Thanks, guys. <laughs> I don't have to go digging back through like library archives because a lot of people kind of did a lot of it for me already. Um, yeah. I already knew like I'm, I'm a history teacher uh, some of the time. So I, I already knew a fair bit about the flu. Like I always when I'm, uh, you know, teaching World War One and then the Roaring Twenties and the, the Depression and that kind of stuff. I always make sure I spend, you know. Uh, a good 15 20 minutes talking about the flu just to sort of make people realize like oh by the way uh, to celebrate the end of world war one guess what we did everybody died um yeah. <laughs> uh, you know i try i try to i try to not make it the most depressing lesson ever because there's a lot of depressing stuff in history but uh just to let them know like how how many people like more people died from the spanish flu than had died in world war one like it was more deadly and and yeah. it killed the same age group as well right that, you know, World War One's killing these healthy young men who are the next generation. And that's exactly what the Spanish flu did as well. Right. So it's yeah. um, it's kind of like a double tragedy. It really sucks. Um, so to begin with the Spanish flu, most people, uh, the first question they ask is, why is it called the Spanish flu? Most people would think that it uh, it originates in Spain. Well, uh, it starts to uh, uh, the flu really begins to appear in the world, starts to really notice that it's happening a lot. Um during World War One, World War One's still going on, but it's toward the, the, the end stages of the war. Um, but France, England, Germany, and even the USA are not going to volunteer that information to the enemy. Like, oh, by the way, a whole bunch of our soldiers are dropping dead of this mystery illness. They're mm-hmm. not going to let the other side know that. They're operating under media restrictions or under propaganda rules. Um, so the only country whose media fully reported on how like awful this flu was and that millions of people could be dying of it was spain they Mm -hmm. were not at war and therefore their media was free to report on how devastating this epidemic was uh and so that's why we started calling it the spanish flu because when it first started to be reported and came into the 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 global consciousness it was all happening in spain because they were the only ones allowed to really report on it Mm -hmm. Um, and so that's where the name originates it actually does not originate from spain it's just how it ended up being named um Um, can i ask a question yeah absolutely or 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 some kind of question slash comment i my understanding is that the current theories are that it either originated in the uk or the us is that is that what you found yeah that is absolutely what i found and i'm uh, it's actually what i'm about to go through sorry (laughs) so no no it's, it's perfect it's uh it's, I'd much rather you ask me the questions than me sort of have to feed the questions in myself. Um, yeah, so it's like if it, if it wasn't Spain and the name is just, you know, it's the wrong name for it, then where does it actually start, right? So there's a few different theories. I'm going to try to run through a bunch of them. And I, I read a lot of different stuff um, that sort of lean towards a few sources. And it was actually difficult for me to um, sort of figure out which one was the – was 
was the best answer. It, it took me a lot of reading and eventually I'd settled on, okay, I think I'm going to mention these two as distinct possibilities and then focus on this one as I'm pretty sure this is where it started or this is my best guess. Okay. And then I found this, um, this absolutely fantastic article uh, by a man named John M. Berry from 2004. So okay. he probably wrote that after the SARS epidemic, sort of yeah. like, hey, this is what I, you know, I'm, I'm an expert. This is what I know about, you know, when it really happened the last time. And he cites a man named uh, Dr. Edwin Jordan, uh, who was editor of the Journal of Infectious Disease. And he reviewed work from all over the world and published it in 1927. So he was a, the contemporary expert yeah. on what had happened in, in, uh, in 1918, much in the way that I'm sure scientists will be studying this pandemic when, when it's over, hopefully, hopefully soon. But yeah. when it's over, scientists are going to study this for the next 15, 20 years. Yeah. And then those findings will be useful to medical people in the future. So uh, Dr. Edwin Jordan was that guy. And he was the one who sort of compiled all these sources and then sort of came up with this idea of like, we're pretty sure this is where it started and this is the best evidence. Um, okay. So the, the first sort of idea is that it began in the trench, trenches of France. Oh, I hadn't um, heard that one. Okay. Yeah. Um, th that a pneumonia starts to appear in soldiers, um, probably due to those horrific living conditions yeah. uh, in the trenches. You know, it's damp, it's cold. There's a severe lack of sanitation. Like you're living in a trench. You can't pop your head up or you're going to get shot in the head. And, you know, there's a big mud puddle next to you. Well, I, I guess I... I guess I will relieve myself in said mud. Um, <laughs> and, and it was like, you know, they, they'd walk on planks over huge mud puddles that were so deep that if you fell, if a soldier fell off, he might drown yeah. in that mud puddle. Like it was, yeah. living conditions were horrific, right? So a lot of people um, thought that um, sort of like these, this damp, wet cough that some of the soldiers would develop called la grippe, which is what, what we now use in French. Um, okay. you, you know, you, uh, you, you either say you, uh, j'ai la rhume ou j'ai la grippe, um, for when you've got a cold or a flu. And uh, so uh, la grippe is sort of the first like word. Um, at the same time, uh, it, they believed in British military camps that it may have been beginning. Um, and, and the scientists there, this again was 1916, like late 19, 1916, okay. um, the, the, the British scientists, uh, sorry, not scientists, doctors, um, called it a purulent bronchitis. Hmm. Um, and the, 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 the symptoms when they autopsied some of the men who had died of this, um, you know, this is a possible origin, uh, for some people because the, the autopsies revealed the same sort of lung condition as what they later found in Spanish influenza victims. Okay. Um, but the, the, um, uh, John M. Berry and especially, uh, Dr. Edwin Jordan basically dispelled that as the origin by saying, there's a distinct lack of contagion. It was not anywhere near as contagious because mm. it, would, it would flare up in a very small pocket and then die out. Yeah. Um, and then later when the influenza hits, it is extremely contagious and spreads very, very easily. And so they're like, they don't think it's the same strain. Um, yeah. Maybe it was a precursor to what was known as the Spanish influenza, but they believe it's a different disease or it was just actually bronchitis and they were getting it. because Just really awful bronchitis. Yes. Yeah. Just really bad because they were living in terrible, terrible conditions. Yeah. 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 Um, <clears throat> and so that's the, that's sort of the, the argument against that that could have been the origin of it. Um, okay. I, I think some people might still try to argue it, but you know, going by his expertise and that of the contemporary, meaning, uh, you know, the, the doctors who, who studied in that era, uh, it seems like that was the, that was the best, um, that it, it's it's not the best possible origin for it. That it, it might have been a precursor, I guess you could argue, but it really seems like that's not the the point of origin for the the pandemic um, strain. Um, okay. So then uh, another possibility: um, some people brought up Asia that uh, either Chinese or Vietnamese workers um, came to North America and to Europe to help build railways and roads and participate in the war effort. And okay. when I say uh, when I say Vietnamese, don't forget that Vietnam uh, used to be a French colony too, right? Yeah. So yeah. Um, they weren't exactly happy to be going over there. They were probably forced to go over there and build different things. And so uh, one of the theories is that they brought it with them. Um, there had been a, an outbreak in China um, of a uh, pulmonary disease uh, that had been fatal um, a little bit before this started to happen. And so some believe that the workers who were tightly packed on trains across Canada and the United States on their way to Europe 
may have had it and may have given it to someone else or carried it with them to the Western Front. Um, It's been considered, but it doesn't seem like it's the best method of transmission, um, Mm -hmm. especially when we start to consider the next theory. Um, Basically... Um, Jordan concluded that that the the the, the French or British theory uh, or the Asian theory couldn't really be the true um, the true uh, best guess as to the cause of the pandemic um, or, or where its origin really began. Um, just because when we do get to that, you're going to see that there's no real way that somebody from Asia could have dropped it off where it seems to begin. Um, yeah. So the, the first outbreak and widespread contagion, and I think contagion is probably the key word there. It's yeah. that the, the, other, the other ones have a case probably in terms of like, a, well, this had similar uh, symptoms. This had similar, you know, uh, similar fatality. But really what it seems to be is that a widespread contagion where it just spread in a community like, like, uh, like it was going out of style and it really, you really didn't seem to be able to stop it. Uh, seems to begin in a very small town in Kansas. Yeah, um, yeah. It's, a, it's a place known as Haskell County, Kansas, in the southwest corner of the state. Uh, and um, uh, many, many soldiers began to fall ill simultaneously at a, a, a base known as uh, Camp Funston, um, which ironically, well, not ironically, I guess coincidentally, now is known as Fort Riley. So uh, <laughs> uh, it is. Um, yeah, so, um, there, there are some weird coincidences like that in life sometimes. Um, so, uh, basically the, uh, the, the military camp is about 300 kilometers away from Haskell County. Um, and, and the soldiers at this camp, that's where like all of a sudden it's being recorded, um, because so many of them get sick so quickly. Um. But before that, um, the the way before the arrival of American troops in France, um, all of these experts sort of reported, and what they, you know, these guys were experts. So like people who are, you know, who might say like, well, what did, what did the guys of that era really know? And they, you know, we like a lot, a lot of medicine was not near as advanced as it is, as it is today, but. Um, these guys were these contemporary scientists that worked with Jordan um, and a lot of them worked for the Rockefeller Institute uh, were Nobel prize winners. And uh, you know, people who invented some of the first vaccines uh, for meningitis, for pneumonias, like they were absolutely experts. So what they, their sort of consensus builds is, is actually very convincing. Um, So Camp Funston is the place where it, it's, it really gets noticed for the first time. But there was a previously unknown outbreak in Haskell County, and that's what these guys ended up finding. Um, okay. So, so Haskell County is farm country, right? They raise yeah. cattle, they raise poultry, they raise hogs. And as we know, many strains of flu either come from uh, from birds or from hogs. Yeah. Um, and so being in an in an area like that, you would you know you'd have lots of manure everywhere. Uh, you know, it's it's farm country in the 19, uh, 1910s probably not particularly advanced in terms of hygiene. Um, mm-hmm. you know, if you worked on a farm, you know, you might be subjected to, um, you know, uh, being exposed to, to some sort of uh, bacteria, some sort of virus that could be coming from the animals. It's, you're in such close, <coughs> excuse me, um, you're in such close quarters with them that, you know, it, it, the, the, the possibility of transmission goes higher of it, like breaking that species barrier, right? Um, and so, uh, a lot of the, dwe- like this, this place is such a small, tiny farming community. And so, um, I don't want to say primitive, but like, it's, it, it's a pretty tough life. Um, yeah. a lot of the dwellings at this point are even sod houses. Um, like the, the houses are built out of dirt and grass. Um, wow. uh, even one of the post offices was in a, in a dugout sod house. Uh, wow. at this point. Uh, it has a population of, uh, 1,720 people in an area of 578 square miles. Um, wow. So wow. it's like you're, you're literally, you're riding a horse or I guess if you had a car, you're, you're, you're going probably sometimes 10, 15, 20 miles between houses uh, or between farms as it were. Um, so they, they do happen to have, even though it's a very small community, uh, they do happen to have a local doctor who's quite well-educated 
and his name is Loring Minor. And so he begins to see these cases of influenza, but it's unlike anything he's ever seen. Um, and this is in late January or early February of 1918. Um, his patients, that the ones that were being, uh, were, were being uh, affected by it, were the strongest, healthiest people in town. And they were being struck down as if they'd been shot, like it was they just dropped. Um, yeah. And it was pneumonia case after pneumonia case. Um, the local paper, they're still at war, right? So the local paper didn't want to hurt wartime morale, so they didn't uh, make a big deal about it. But they did start to print on the inner pages uh, stories about people falling ill, recovering, uh, you know, getting a little bit better, like trying to keep morale up, but at the same time not make too big a deal about how many people are getting sick. But it's like, you know, so-and-so's kids fell ill but are doing better now and blah, blah, like, like these, you know, per, like everybody knows each other, right? It's a small yeah. community. So yeah. I was like, you know, you know, Mrs. Taylor of uh, su such and such a farm, uh, you know, fell ill last Wednesday. And it's like, you know, just sort of letting people know uh, who's getting sick. And uh, but they would keep that on the inner pages of the paper of the uh, the Santa Fe Monitor, um, which was the, the name of the biggest town, which I guess now is like a ghost town. Um, really? It was the name of the biggest town that was uh, was out there and was it wasn't very big. It's not that Santa Fe. Uh, no, I know. I know. I just uh, it's always interesting. Ghost towns I find interesting. And yeah. That like, um, the place existed and then doesn't. Yeah, yeah. It's um, so so the uh, all of this starts to begin. Uh, it's almost the same timing as what as what happens with us. Like it's the same time of year even. Um, it, uh, uh, the inside page, those those notes about people you know falling ill and recovering and who was doing well and who was you know getting pneumonia and etc. All that started to appear uh, around Valentine's Day of 1918. Um, can yeah, I yeah. can I just uh, uh, interject for a second? Absolutely, yeah. So just I I had actually before we got on a while ago I had actually read that there's some criticism over the Kansas hypothesis. Really? That that like basically people weren't sick enough, which I'm not sure. I don't even know what the if that's legitimate criticism, because um, you know, just because they weren't sick enough doesn't mean it wasn't an early version of the yeah uh, right like it might have evolved and gotten worse i don't know yeah um uh, but i just i just i was it i was interested to see which one you picked because when yeah. i was reading I, I saw a little bit of like recent like when i say criticism like from like two years ago or something yeah yeah well, and i don't know how based in like fact it is um well it's from you know from from what i saw when when i read uh, that article by John M. Barry, that, that was sort of yeah. the one that sort of let me, uh, let, let me feel pretty confident that I was yeah. choosing the, the best theory. Yeah. Um, of course, I don't, I don't think anybody can say with hundred percent certainty. Um, oh yeah, yeah, for sure. But, but it, it seems to me as if it's the best one and that the evidence is, is pretty compelling when you get to it. Um, yeah. so, uh, the epidemic got worse and then it sort of disappeared. Um, you know, it, I guess enough people either recovered or enough people died, but Dr. Minor was uh, worried enough about it that he reported it to national public health officials, even though influenza is not a report or wasn't at the time was not a reportable disease. Like it was not on the list of let us know when this happens. And he still made sure to write them a letter and say, yeah, we've got something going on here and it's extremely, um, worrying, but his, um, his warning only gets published in April. Uh, and so mm. nobody really paid it any attention as the source, because by then the outbreak's popping up all over the place. Mm. Uh, so what makes yeah. it really convincing um, that that this could be the the origin of the outbreak is that the route into Haskell from you know uh, you know Chinese workers or that it could have come in any other way into that community yeah. is basically non-existent, right? Like it's a yeah, tiny. Yeah tiny like no one's going there and bringing it in with them but yeah, yeah. It, it is traceable coming out of there and so that's why it seems like the the likely origin spot um so a lot of men from haskell county uh had uh you know were reporting for duty for the uh for uh, going over to europe for world war one they at least had to go for military training and they were going to camp funston <clears throat> um so they would go there it was about 300 kilometers away uh their families visited them there Soldiers came home on leave uh, and uh, came home on leave to Haskell County and then returned to Camp Funston. Um, and so there's lots of reports of these comings and goings uh, mentioned in the uh, Santa Fe uh, Monitor in late February. 
which is exactly when that outbreak was was going on in Haskell County. Uh, and, th and then on March 4th of 1918, the first soldier falls ill at Camp Funston. So Camp Funston's like the biggest one um, yeah. in that region of the United States. It holds 56,000 plus troops. Um, wow. So then three weeks later, after the first soldier falls ill on March 4th, 1,100 are in hospital and thousands more are being seen at the different infirmaries across the camp. And wow. so it, like, they're getting it at a phenomenal rate. Um, yeah. and, and so with an army base of 50,000 plus men, you know they're going to end up going to other camps and getting transferred and they're all on their way over to Europe. Um, and so they end up traveling to all of these other army camps. And so it starts to spread that way. And this is documented. Um, yeah. By the end of April, so this is, again, just another month later, 24 out of 36 main army camps had outbreaks of influenza. Um, wow. Yeah, it moves super quick. Um, and then in the United States, 30 out of the 50 largest cities had also had a spike uh, of influenza outbreaks in April. So it's, mm. it's starting to pop up everywhere that large populations gather. Yeah. Um, and so it's sort of like if you sort of connect those dots, it really seems like it has the strongest case to be the beginning of the outbreak. Mm -hmm. um, the first wave, as you know, influenza goes, is relatively mild in that it's not super, super deadly compared with the, the second wave. Um, but the autopsies that are done on the people who don't survive observe these wet hemorrhagic lungs uh, and that fatalities would typically occur within 20, uh, 24 to 48 hours. So it kills Jesus. you like super, super quickly. Yeah. And basically... Um, your, your lungs start to hemorrhage and you, you basically drown in your own fluid. It's a horrible way to die. Um, yeah. But pathologists who, who did these autopsies don't start to not consider it as a, like an influenza. They're like, this is a new, brand new disease. We've never seen a flu like this. We don't know what it is. Um, oh. uh, so then by the end of April in 1918, when it's, you know, the, you know, it's all over the army bases uh, in the United States and it's really spreading in the cities, influenza also begins erupting in France. And where in France are the are the largest number of cases? A place called Brest, B-R-E-S-T. It's and, a seaport. Yes, and it's the largest port serving troops, American troops arriving in Europe. Oh, okay. Um, and so, like the, the the connection is really really easy to make of how it could have spread from Haskell to Funston to mm -hmm. 24 other army camps over to the the port where the Americans were arriving in France, and then to the soldiers in World War One. Yeah, and then when they come back from World War One, they bring that home with them um, yeah. as well. So you so you get another outbreak as well. Um, so basically, with, with you know all of my research had me leaning that way, and then when I read John M. Barry's article, um, yeah. we wrote you know all the way back in two thousand four, um, it really convinced me that I think that's the logical uh, best guess, and I, I think it's a fairly strong guess that that's where it began. Yeah, uh, and, and that it, it had uh, it had hopped over the species barrier um, to to uh, infect humans, and then it became just extremely contagious amongst us. Similar to what's happening now, right? Like it jumps yeah. over the species barrier, and then it just happens to be extremely contagious in us. Um, uh, and then and then you know you start to think about the Spanish influenza, like how bad was it, right? Um, <clears throat> and we're coming to a really tricky thing here because uh, the records start to sort of break down as the as the influenza gets really really bad so mm -hmm. we actually we actually don't know for certainty how many people died the most commonly cited number i'll, I'll let you take a guess you may have heard it because we've, we've been reading things about the the old spanish influenza and how many people died the number that i've heard people bandy around lately is 50 million but that is way higher than what i had thought it was yeah, that's the number that a lot of people um a lot of people cite I read an excellent stats article that sort of said, well, if it was 50 million, then the uh, the CFR, the case fatality rate, is is listed on most websites as uh, a little bit greater than 2.5 percent. Yeah, well, it's very the high. World, the world population was only 1.5 billion then. Yeah. So that means basically everybody in the world had to get it for it to, for those numbers to make sense. Yeah. Um, yeah. If everyone got it and the, the, the case fatality rate was 2.5%, that's 37.5 million people. So either it's way, it was way more deadly than we thought. Yeah. Um, or way you know, fewer the, people got it. Yeah, either, either, so it's either 
fewer people got it and it was way more deadly than we thought or everybody got it. Yeah. And Busted. it was, you know, but if 50 million is really the number, then it was definitely still higher than two and a half percent. So the, the, yeah. the numbers are a little bit weird. And then I, I finally sort of read enough stuff that was basically saying like, yeah, that's some people estimate 21 million. Some people say even as high as 100 million. I've um, heard that. You know, some yeah. people were being, were, were being buried in mass graves, so they didn't really even know the numbers. And and yeah. I was I was like, man, that seems weird. Like you know, like it's a hundred years ago, but it's not like it was the Stone Ages. Like we we have well, can, you know lots of. Can I just interject for a second? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So this is this is a really uh, terrible topic, but yes. when it comes to the the death tolls of of some of the like, you know, a lot of people maybe less so now that we have the internet, but a lot of people have thought that like Hitler was the worst dictator yeah. of the of the 20th century by a death toll, but yeah, it's not even close. Um, it's, it's, it's Stalin or Mao. Um, yes. But, but not in the same way, right? Like they yeah. were not murdering people necessarily. <laughs> they were in some cases, they were more starving them to death and working them to death, but yes. nobody knows how many people. And just like with the Spanish flu, the estimates are all over the place. Like you, yeah, like yeah, yeah. I, I saw with the Spanish flu, I saw somewhere between 20 and a hundred million, which is like an insane range. Yes. It and is, yeah, and it really similar, is. uh, both Stalin and Mao, there are people who will attribute like to Mao, you know, 20 million deaths. And there are other people who attribute 90 Yeah. and, and Stalin is not quite up that high, but like, it's, it's a similar thing. And I think, some of it is just like you said, record keeping, especially once you once mass graves are involved, like record keeping kind of goes out the window. It and, really does. Yeah. yeah. And, and especially when when people are are dying in large amounts, at yeah. some point, people are like, why? Like no one's thinking, regardless of whether it's a pandemic or starvation, like a, a famine, uh, whether that famine is induced by the government or not, uh, no one's like, I better record these for posterity, right? Like no one's thinking about it. So I think that's at least partially the explanation is just like the amount of death is so overwhelming to people that like it's all, we're never going to know for sure, you know, because like once you start digging trenches to throw people in, it's it's hard to it's hard to keep track and it just it's just that it's a lot <laughs> yeah, you know? yeah. That, that was the main that was the main point i wanted to bring up was like it either was way way more contagious than people think if we're going to go with uh, 50 million or uh th just that the case uh the case fatality rate is wrong and that it was much more deadly than that yeah. and, and it could be that some deaths were not attributed to having died of the flu yeah. It's like, oh no, he died of this, he died of that, but it, it really, uh, it, it seems like either almost everyone caught it, or, you know, I, I've seen uh, some people say that uh, 500 million people caught it. Yeah. Or then if the number you throw out is 50 million, then you're looking at like a 10% case fatality rate, like it's extremely Which is deadly. insane, yeah. Which, which also, from everything I've read, like these anecdotal accounts of the doctors and nurses who worked in these in these field hospitals that they'd set up uh, actually makes more sense to me that it really was that deadly um, or, or at least certain parts of the outbreak were um, mm -hmm. it's, it's really um, it's, but it's really hard to tell statistically. We just know that it was horrible and we know that it predominantly affected young people. So, uh, yeah. you know, uh, people between the ages of 20 and uh, 30 or so, I guess, even up to 40. So basically people in the, you know, young adulthood were the ones that were being cut down by it. Um, yeah. <clears throat> some people have theorized that, that that could be because the older generation had experienced some sort of similar flu before mm, okay. and had all survived. So they had the immunity and then the young yeah. people didn't. Um, okay. I just read that. I just read that after I'd made my notes and I thought that was particularly interesting. But yeah. not to get too bogged down in it, but basically I've read a few articles who are like, yeah, the statistics for this make no sense. And then read, you know, read some of the anecdotes about doctors treating people. And they're like, this is why the statistics don't make any sense. And we have no real accurate, like it's, it's an educated guess. And one article had cited 50 million. So everyone else started citing it. And then <laughs> it just became the number, right? Like the, the agreed upon number. But the, the doctors and nurses 
at first we're recording, you know, this, you know, this young man died of, you know, pneumonia caused by Spanish influenza, you know, such and such a date, such and such a time. They would, these similar to what's happening in some of the countries in the world now where their medical system is just overwhelmed. They don't have time to write down what somebody died of, or even just, okay, like get like the beds empty next person. Like let's, yeah, let's yeah. try to save somebody else. And so yeah. the record keeping completely goes out the window and they're in like a, a, a desperate triage situation, not to mention a lot exactly. of them are catching it and falling ill themselves. So then who's, who's, who's doing the autopsy or who's declaring the cause of death? Exactly. Uh, I don't know. We've, you know, both doctors are sick or dead, so it's three nurses running the floor, and that's not even part of their job. Normally, they're just—they're not going to do it. So, it's just a, at that point, it's just a body count, and records get lost. People stop counting, like just you know. So, it, it, there's no way to know accurately how many people died of it. But we, what we do know is that it was extremely deadly and uh, affected society in a massive way, which you know we're sort of seeing now. Um, and I mean, you can only imagine what it was like a hundred years ago when even getting news about it must have been a little bit more difficult. But I know that, you know, they had started to implement a lot of the same uh, restrictions that we had, you know, no, no more than 10 people here. Um, uh, Philadelphia, I know, held, held a big parade. Yeah, because um, they beat it. it. Like, um, I I think I think they held the parade for the military, I believe. And oh, I thought it was a parade celebrating the fact that they conquered the Spanish flu. No, maybe that's just so. an, maybe that's an urban legend. <laughs> it's, it's possible, but uh, they, they were one of the hardest hit cities. I believe yeah. in. <clears throat> I believe I read a statistic that in a month they they lost eleven thousand people. Wow. In one city, like it's yeah, it's uh, <clears throat> it hit them pretty hard. Um, um, just to, <clears throat> sorry, just one other yeah, thing is I'm just gonna echo what you were saying about the triage like military triage is is this idea that you save the people who can be saved and the people who can't be saved are left to die yeah and in that situation which we're very fortunate we are not currently in and let's hope we don't get there um you know it's really easy to understand why people wouldn't be keeping track anymore because you're too busy you have only one thing, and that is like, you know, the reason those decisions are made is because you do not have the resources to cope with everybody, to save everyone's life. And and so in that circumstance, you're also not going to spend time like, you know, keeping your, uh, you know, your uh, ledger, your ledger up to date, right? Yeah, 100%. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah so so the, the Spanish flu sort of came at us in three waves. The first wave I've sort of detailed. Uh, the second one in the fall is the deadliest by far. Um, and then the third one is the one that affects our cup final. Um, and, and it was, uh, it was, it happened to be very strong in the region in which the cup final took place. Um, so just very unfortunate, uh, that that's how it happened. Um, so the, the second wave obviously impacts the season to some degree. A lot of people are sick. You're probably not getting big crowds. Uh, people probably don't want to be in a building. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, but the third one impacts the playoffs. Um, so uh, I, I don't know if you I don't know if you took a look at uh, at the season. Um, yeah, no, I, I got I got a couple of things to say about the season. Okay, perfect. If, so I'll turn if, it over to you then. Yeah. So um, well, I'm going to talk about both both seasons actually, uh, the the NHL and the PCHA, but just briefly. Um, there's a lot of something that we haven't really talked about, um, but like. Is, is I'm sure I'm going to learn when I read Down Goes Brown's book about uh, the, the NHL. Um, and uh, we talked a little bit about the transition from the NHL to NHL, but we've mostly focused on, uh, focused on individual players. Um, but one of the crazy things is, you know, the NHL was formed to sort of get out of the NHA. And something I didn't realize is going into this NHL season, they were still fighting. And so there were just a ton of lawsuits to start the year because uh, they, you know, the NHL had left the NHA so to get away from one bad owner, and he just tried to sue the hell out of them. He didn't like the fact they were playing. This is the second NHL season, um, and so that that created a lot of um, you know uncertainty aside from the uh, aside from the flu, um, and that uh, so that was looming over everything as well. Um, there were some. Uh, pretty important um, rule changes um, 
they introduced a, a penalty system or introduced it. They they refined it. So uh, you could now there were now three minute penalties for for minors. So it's changed to two minute now. And there were five minutes for majors. Um, majors, including throwing a stick to prevent a goal, which I thought was really funny because uh, I didn't really. Yeah, yeah, I didn't realize that was a strategy, uh, but apparently oh, yeah, it was. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, especially because no one could get the puck off the ice, right? Uh, and uh, and there were also match penalties. Uh, so if you deliberately hurt someone, you would get kicked out for a match or a game. I guess they called them matches back then. Um, and there were some technical uh, changes to the rules. Uh, two lines were added to the ice, I guess, beforehand that were not those. Um and you were allowed, and uh, in the neutral zone, forward passing was now allowed. Um, but of course, you could still couldn't do that in the offensive zone, which is one of the reasons why the game was very, very different back then. Um, so that was kind of interesting. Uh, I, Bill, were you going to talk about Hamby Shore? Uh, no, I was not. So okay. So, well, I'll also just mention that uh, that though uh, things got much worse later the first the first player to die from the flu was hamby shore in in october 1918 um that clearly was not enough it's it's interesting how things have changed right like a lot of there there's a divide right now at least uh i don't know if it's a real divide or it's a fake media slash social media created divide between people who think social distancing is a good strategy and those people who think the economy should be saved at all costs but it's interesting that Say the NBA, you know, Rudy Gobert got tested, uh, uh, found positive for COVID-19, and they shut down immediately. And the NHL player had a player die in October, <laughs> and they were like, "Let's keep playing." Yeah. And and so things have changed, and I would argue for the better, and that our precautions currently might be more reasonable now than letting people die because the economy. Or, or in this case, ticket ticket sales probably were the reason why Hamby Shore was considered not enough of a reason to end the season. So uh, the season back then, all NHL seasons were divided into two. And so the first half of the season was won by the Canadians. Uh, they had about a, a, what was it, a 700 winning percentage. And the centers were second with 500 winning percentage. And the arena's third with 300. And then in the second half of the season, the Senators took off like crazy and won 87, almost 88% of their games, and no one else was any good. Um, but the best player in the league, as we talked about in the New Zealand episode and also in the pre- er, first ever Hart, uh, like the pre-Hart Hart Trophy, like the first episode of our Hart series, was New Zealand alone. He, had, he led the league with 23 goals, which is basically half of what Joe Malone had the year before. He also tied for the league and assists the lead in assists with nine, and so he led the league in points with 32 in 18 games, which is pretty good. Um, Clint Benedict, who we talked about in our Heart series a little bit, uh, was the best goalie. Um, he had uh, he played 18 games. He won 12 out of 18, um, and he only gave up uh, 83 goals, which is you know fine. Uh, and two shutouts. Um, so the the Canadians, like I said, the Canadians had the best player and they got off to a really good start. Um, but they uh, they they sort of you know trailed the Senators for the regular rest of the regular season, and then um, that of course changed once again in the playoffs when um, they handily beat the Senators four uh, one. In the playoffs, the Senators, who had been like like I said, the best team for the last eight games, the season were very short back then. And if memory serves, Lalonde had a hell of a playoff, I believe, possibly the best in the history of the league. I'm just looking that up right now. Um, yeah, <laughs> he had 13 points in five games. Um, so you know, that's good, right? Yeah. Pretty good. Yeah, I think that's pretty good. If you, if you, yeah, if you extrapolate that over a regular, uh, obviously, if he had played, he played, uh, you know, a a normal like twenty game NHL playoff, he wouldn't have had 
three points a game almost, but like I'm pretty sure I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure that still stands up as the highest points per game in, in a playoff in NHL history to this day. I could be wrong. Anyway, so on the other side, we have the PCHA, who we talked about a bunch with our various players, uh, uh, PCHA players that we've talked about over the past couple of years. Um, that league was also only a couple teams um, because one of the teams was actually suspended the uh, uh, the Portland franchise. So there was only the Vancouver Millionaires, the Seattle Metropolitans, and the Victoria Aristocats. The Millionaires were the best team, but only by a little bit. Uh, they had a they had a significantly well. They both had about the same goal differential, but they only had one more win than the the Metropolitans. But they had the league's best player, Cyclone Taylor, who we talked about on an old episode. And they basically they had a lot of the best players. Cyclone Taylor had 36 points in 20 games, and then they had uh, the second, sorry, the third spot on the list, the fifth, the sixth, the eighth, and ninth on the uh, scoring list. Um, lots of lots of scoring, um, though the uh, the Metropolitans had a few good ones as well, um, and they uh, they won the. So back then, some series were were goal. I think they were all actually probably total goal differential at the time. But so the playoffs in the PCHA were much shorter. Yeah, so I'm, I'm actually going to get into that. So um, I'll okay, take over from me there. Um, <clears throat> yeah, so I'll, I'll give a little bit of sort of background about uh, the Metropolitans and the, the Canadians, and then I'll, I'll kind of run through the 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 playoffs there, just because it it becomes extremely interesting. Um, yeah sort of sort of the build up to it makes a lot more sense uh, okay. sort of understand where where both teams were um so so they had met before right um yeah um you know and so we, we have seattle and the montreal canadians um and uh you know it's it's actually kind of weird that we're getting a seattle expansion franchise right now and yeah. we're having another pandemic it's like maybe maybe we shouldn't have a seattle franchise <laughs> <laughs> Just, just just move them to Quebec, right? I'm I'm, yeah, yeah. I'm I'm being facetious, of course. It's just another one of those extremely weird coincidences. Yeah. Um, so this is actually the second cup meeting between these two teams. Uh, they they met before in 1917 with Seattle becoming the first American team uh, to win the cup. Um, and so you know with with a year's break in between where Toronto wins, uh, they're they're having a rematch. Um, so in 1917, it was a three to one win for Seattle. Um, it was the first cup final that was actually played in the United States. It was played in Seattle. Um, and obviously this would have been before, uh, before the pandemic had set in, um, the, uh, games one and three get played under uh, PCHA rules, which is seven skaters aside and with a forward pass. And then games two and four were NHA rules, uh, which did not have a forward pass. Um, this also was the last year of the NHA. Um, and then in the NHL, they fully allow the forward pass in 1920. But as Riley mentioned before, they had forward passing just between the two, uh, just between the two blue lines. Um, uh, so basically, you know, the NHL only gets full forward passing after the, the canceled 1919 final. So, so we're playing under different rules and therefore each final, each cup final of five games is going to alternate between the league's rules. And so that kind of changes things a lot. Um, so for the 19th like baseball, final, but way more complicated. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Um, so for the uh, for the 1917 final, uh, there's some really big names involved in that final. Georges Vezina's in goal, Didier Petra and uh, Nuzi Lalonde are at forward for Montreal. Um, you know, these are these are names that if you're if you're a hockey history buff, you know these names. They jump off the page at you. Um, so Montreal wins game one eight to four under PCHO rules, and Didier Petra has four goals. Um, but from then on, Seattle takes over the series. They win 6-1, 4-1, and 9-1 to win Ooh. the Stanley Cup. So how does, Mon- how does Seattle end up beating a Montreal team that has Nuzi Lalonde, Vezina, uh, 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 Georges Vezina, and Didier Petra? Well, uh, they had some pretty excellent players of their own. Um, they had a guy named Harry Cap Holmes in net, uh, who a lot of people, when you, when you read articles about the cup finals of those eras, say that he played just as well as... Uh, George Vezina did, and I mean, the trophy's named after Vezina. He's a hell of a goalie, so they had a good goalie in their own right. They had Jack Walker, whom, uh, whom we've talked about on, uh, on this uh, podcast. Um, and they had uh, Frank Foyston, who we've also talked about on this podcast. Yeah. 
and then they especially they had a guy named Bernie Morris, who I do not believe is in the Hockey Hall of Fame, but I think we should probably have an episode about him. Um, and he absolutely dominates this 1917 Stanley Cup Final Series. Uh, he scores 14 of their 23 goals in the series. Wow. Yeah, it's like insane. I've never heard of anything like it. Um, Foyston also has a hat trick in one of the games. So it's really that duo that does all the damage and they just can't stop them. That's basically, um, that's like a basketball level of... It's crazy, yeah. You just you yeah. can't stop the guy. And yeah. by the way, Bernie Morris was five foot seven and 145 pounds. So he must have been extremely fast. Yeah, um, yeah. And, and he played Rover, right? They, they had, uh, the PCHA has an extra player under their rules. Yeah. And so he was the Rover. So he's, you know, one of these guys that probably just skates all over the ice and he can't ke- keep up with them. Um, yeah. And so, like, all of this 1917 de- detail will make a lot of sense why I brought it up, um, because uh, we're going to be talking about 1919, and a lot of the same, uh, a lot of the same people are involved in uh, in the next cup final. Um, and an interesting note as well, the uh, the coach of the Seattle Metropolitans in 1917, and then again in 1919 is a guy named Pete Muldoon, uh, and he's 29 when they win the cup. So he's still the youngest ever winning coach manager to, uh, to win the Stanley Cup. Wow, uh, cool. Yeah. Um, so the, 19, uh, the 2019 playoffs, uh, we start in the PCHA. Seattle beats Vancouver 7-5 to on aggregate. Um, they win the first game 6-1, and then they, they lose the next one 4-1. But, you know, like they were up by five goals starting the game, so you feel pretty confident, right? Uh, yeah. Pretty much had it in the bag. <clears throat> but here's the thing. Before puck drop of game one, Bernie Morris gets arrested for draft dodging in Seattle. Um, Jesus. He claimed to not have received the letter uh, as he was living in Vancouver, but uh, they proved that he was been he had been living in Seattle the last three years um, from testimony uh, that he gave in his divorce trial. So they basically had him on record as saying, "Yeah, I live in Seattle." So they're like, "Well, you draft dodged. You didn't answer the letter. You didn't show up," and so uh, he was arrested. And not only was he not permitted to play in the cup, uh, to play in the playoffs in the cup final, he was sentenced to two years hard labor on Alcatraz. Jesus. Yeah. Like they, they basically, they said, we're going to make an example out of you. Um, you're a fairly well-known person. This is, wait, this is 19, this is 1919. Yep. The war's so over. They, yes, I know. But they said he draft dodged when they tried <laughs> to get him to go to war. Um, Jesus. So, uh, I know. I know. Um, so he served about seven months on Alcatraz. Like he really did end up serving time on Alcatraz. Um, and then he ended up joining an army camp and then was eventually given an honorable discharge. Um, and then he played for Seattle in the 1920 series against Ottawa. And he basically went straight from that army camp straight to Ottawa to play in the, in the cup final in 1920. Um, so it's a pretty wild start to the playoffs when the star of the 1917 final is arrested and does not play in that final. Um, so with, uh, Morris out, the heavy lifting falls on Foyston and in that six, one game that they win against uh, Vancouver, he scores a hat trick in that six, one game. So, uh, so he, he has to sort of take over and be the guy now because Bernie Morris is no longer there for them. Yeah. Um, so over in the NHL, as Riley said, uh, Montreal plays Ottawa, Montreal wins, uh, the first half, Ottawa wins the second half. It's a best of seven series. Montreal wins four to one. Uh, and then we end up with a rematch of the 1917 final. So the cup finals played in Seattle. Um, and the second wave of the flu is over, but unfortunately the third wave is going to come and it hits particularly hard in Washington state. Um, so like 1917, they alternate rules, PCHA for games one and three, NHL for games two and four, uh, and then game five, obviously, if you're following that pattern would be PCHA rules, but you'll see that it gets a little bit more complicated than that. Um, so under the PCHA, PCHA rules, Seattle totally dominates. Game one finishes seven, nothing. And Frank Foyston has a hat trick. Um, game two is NHL rules, and Montreal wins four to two, with uh, New Zealand alone scoring all four Montreal goals. So already we've had a hat trick in a four goal game. Yeah. Um, of note in this game, Joe Hall takes a puck to the nose on a deliberate play by a guy named Cully Wilson, which kind of reminds me of Scott Thornton firing a puck into the bench in 2011. And then yeah. in two. Two minutes later, Aaron Rome destroys Nathan Horton. You're like, yeah, that's when you hit somebody in the face of the puck, uh, people get pretty mad. Um, so poor Joe Hall gets a deliberate puck to the nose and, uh, you know, all the rough stuff. And so basically Seattle was losing that game four zip. 
and then I guess tried to motivate their guys by playing a little bit physical and uh, and then, you know, eventually that sort of physical play died down because they actually got back into the game and made it 4-2. Um, but this this guy, Coley Wilson, it's, it's important to mention him because he's going to play a <laughs> play a key role in this series, uh, as will Joe, Joe Hall. Um, so he deliberately shoots a puck right off Joe Hall's nose, which, you know, it's funny you were saying nobody could lift the puck before. Apparently they can't. <laughs> right into somebody's nose. Um, so Montreal wins that game 4-2 to and the series is tied. <coughs> um so game three is another PCH rules game. It finishes seven to two for Seattle. And uh, in answer to New Zealand alone's four goal game, Frank Foiston has a four goal game in this one. Um, so like, can you imagine stars trading four goal games back to back? No. And you know yeah. what? It, it made me think the other day I was, when I was writing all these notes down, I'm like, Oh, there wasn't there like Crosby and Ovechkin game where they each scored a hat trick in the playoffs. And I couldn't remember. And I went back and watched it. And what a damn game that was. It was incredible. Like, when you're done this or anybody who's listening, go rewatch that game on YouTube. It is phenomenally good. Like, they each score a hat-trick, but the goalie saves are out of this world good. Like, it's a really entertaining game. Uh, I'd completely forgotten how great that game was. Um, I can't even remember what year it is. Just, you know, type in Ovechkin-Crosby hat-trick game, and it'll pop up for sure. Yeah. Um, so now we get to the even more interesting part. So we've already had a hat-trick in two four-goal games. We've had deliberate pucks to the nose. We've had all kinds of things happening in this one. So game four <coughs> um, is widely considered by old-timey hockey writers to be an all-time classic. Uh, the score finishes 0-0 after 20 minutes of overtime. Like, literally, that no one scores a goal in the game. At the end of the first, it appears as though Cully Wilson scores. But the ref waves it off, saying that time had expired. So maybe a little bit of karma there for the puck to the nose. Um, anyway, the game's incredibly hotly contested. Both goalies stand on their heads. Um, and as the final overtime horn sounds, both teams collapse to the ice. Uh, and remember, in those days, they only had 13 players on their rosters. And they didn't always play all 13 of them. They tried to play their best guys. And even then, you're at two lines at best. So like these guys are absolutely exhausted. Uh, and the crowd gives them a standing ovation as they leave the ice. And then uh, because of this game, sudden death becomes a rule for the rest of the series and, uh, you know, for the uh, for the sort of the rest of hockey history. Um, so they decide to play game five. But game five is now a replay of game four because nobody won. And so the NHL. Oh, I didn't realize again. that. Yeah. Yeah. So game five is not a regular game five. It's actually yeah. like game four, part two. Um, because they needed some rest <laughs> but, the, yeah. but it's not sudden death right um yeah. so the nhl rules are kept they have a big argument about it like no well it's game five they're like no well not really because we didn't get our game with the it doesn't count like nobody won so they play game five with nhl rules agreeing that if there is a game six it'll be played with pcha rules um so the game gets going seattle goes up three nothing players are still exhausted they're falling all over the ice they're dropping on the ice uh, like the teams are really, they're sort of giving it their all. And it's a, it's a, uh, a very famous, like extremely hotly contested cup. I would assume that from the 1917 final, they still remembered each other quite well and really yeah. didn't want to lose to the other team. Um, so then, uh, Montreal storms back, uh, to force overtime with three third period goals, two by New Zealand owned, including one with about three minutes left. Um, and then in overtime, a Montreal substitute player named uh, Jack McDonald sprints out onto the ice and capitalizes as Seattle completely falls apart. Frank Foyston had been injured and he was sitting on the bench. Jack Walker breaks a skate and Cully Wilson's so tired he collapses. He tries to, he tries to get off the ice, but Foyston's hurt and he can't replace him. And then Montreal scores while Seattle's short-handed. In wow. overtime. Wow, um, wow. And so I wish there's footage of that, eh? I know, it's crazy. Like, it just sounds like I, I wish there was footage or a radio call so I could be like, man, that sounds amazing. Yeah. Um, so, uh, and Foyston getting hurt now is a huge deal. He had nine of their 19 goals so far in the series. Like, he's by far their best player. Um, when the game ends, some players needed to be helped home and some were brought to the hospital, notably Joe Hall, who had left the game halfway through. Um, he was the oldest player in the league at age 37. And he left halfway through the game with a fever and exhaustion. Um, some journalists at the time, like if you read the article, simply believed that the teams were going at it so hard that they just worn each other out and they were just exhausted with, with those last two epic games. But half the Canadians ended up in the hospital 
uh, along with their coach, George Kennedy, with fevers ranging from 101 to 105 uh, degrees Fahrenheit. Um, and so game six was canceled only five and a half hours before puck drop. Um, George, George Kennedy forfeited the cup to Seattle, but Pete Muldoon refused to accept it on the grounds that, you know, you're only not able to play because of this illness. Um, Kennedy asked if, uh, if he could use some Victoria players to fill in his roster, but Frank Patrick refused on the grounds of fairness because they were not a very good team. <laughs> um, and so they finally just decided the final should be canceled. Uh, Joe Hall passed away a few days later from the flu and George Kennedy, uh, suffered greatly, almost died and lived, but he never fully recovered and ended up dying a few years later. So he never really got healthy again. Um, so, you know, this canceled final famously, like until the, until the, uh, until Gary Batman decided to say it was a good idea to have a year with no hockey, um, was the only year where the Stanley Cup was not awarded. And it was because of the Spanish influenza. And so nothing was written on the cup. It was left blank. Uh, and then in 1948, they finally inscribed 1919 Montreal Canadiens, Seattle Metropolitans series not completed. And so that's that's what was left on the Stanley Cup as a reminder of this time when an illness stopped one of the greatest cup finals uh, yeah. and and sort of, you know, re- reminded us that the flu of that era did take the youngest, healthiest people, even pro athletes were susceptible to um, this this strain of the flu and how de- how deadly it was for everybody and, and how much it must have affected society. Um, so I, yeah. I just thought it was a fe- like phenomenally interesting final and really yeah. uh, really was anxious to sort of get through it and sort of let people know because um, because that's the thing until like until this recent time I'd read a little bit but you know I, I had never read in detail and we've talked about so many of these players um, you know New Zealand alone and uh, Didier Petra and um, uh, George Viz you know like we, we've talked about like these names Boyston. jump on the page. Foiston, but then you get a guy like Bernie Morris, you have no idea, and he's got the craziest story you've ever heard, right? Like, it's really phenomenally interesting, and it's a a little piece of hockey history that uh, is sort of, it's it's incredibly unique. There's never been anything else like it, right? Um, And and so I I think it was worth worth going through. If we're going to have a hockey history podcast, I thought it was worth, given the, the current climate that we're in, and that we're sort of going through a lot of the same things, I thought it would be a really... Really interesting, uh, a really interesting listen for some of the people who are as into hockey history as we are to sort of know just uh, just what an interesting uh, final that was. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I like I said, I think it would have been really interesting um, to 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 have video of it because it sounds, oh, okay. especially that last game, sounds kind of crazy. At the same time, the fact that they played, I know, it, it just goes to show you, it's things have really changed i think for the better um and it is just because like the fact that and i understand they're they're what lukashenko or whoever is the the dictator belarus is just like he was just he was just in a hockey game with his you know presumably pre-approved citizens the other day and he's like better to die on your feet than live on your knees but like you know I, as someone who is currently alive and doesn't want to die, I take issue with that stupidity. <laughs> yeah, you me know, too. I think that I'm it's really easy. Life. Yeah, it's really easy to say that when you're not dead. Yeah. Um, people who are alive think that, like, living is, you know, dying early is, is sometimes people think it's glamorous or it's better to die early. I, I don't, as someone who doesn't believe in an afterlife, I think that's really stupid. Um, and it's, it's, it's interesting that like, I don't know the decision-making process that happened to, to not cancel the game. I I, I legitimately think none of the players had quote unquote the flu yet. They were exhausted, but people are just like, you know, oh, it's because they're playing, you know, they played an overtime game. Of course they're exhausted. It's, and then Joe Hall goes off the ice. Like he would not have played in game six even if the rest of his team hadn't had the flu. Like, I don't think he yeah. really had it. And yeah, so it's, yeah. it's, it's kind of like what's going on now. You don't know you have it until you've already infected other people. So I think that was probably the case. Um, I, I think if he had had, let's say he'd left game four with the flu and then never came back and they still kept playing and be like, oh, that was a really bad decision, guys. This one seems like everyone just sort of dropped at the same time. Like, oh, shit, we all have it. And then, 
they ended up having to cancel the series. Yeah. So <coughs> all I was going to say, so that, that is a very good point um, that like people didn't necessarily know. And I think some of it is, some of it is that some of it is probably like, I'm a man, I'm tough. You know, yeah, I'm not, I'm fine. That. You're not going to um, say you're tired if you're a hockey player. Come on. But also, I and I think something that I'm not sure how much we all appreciate today is just the communication, right? Like, yeah. there's so much more information that the average citizen like you and I can find out. Um, we're not medical professionals. You know, we have liberal arts degrees. Uh, <laughs> you know, but we can we can read. We can go and read all sorts of stuff right now and learn about it and learn what the best guesses are as to how to prevent it and all this stuff. And, and so can to... Um, Gary Bettman and Adam Silver and whomever else they can, yeah. you know, they have more information than these guys ever did. And so as much as part of me is like, what the hell, why yeah. did you guys play? Another part of me is like, well, maybe they didn't know better. Maybe. Yeah. I mean, for one thing, honestly, if I'm, if I'm taking a naive perspective about this, you got to think athletes of all people are not going to fall ill because they're so damn fit. Right. Yeah, and 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 the thing was, they, they'd already had uh, two two waves. Um, yeah. The the problem is that, you know, the 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 soldiers had had come back and 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 sort of as they came back, like these new little pockets of flu were showing up because they were bringing it home with them. Um, and and so you end up with these third waves, and and uh, Seattle ended up having a pretty big one, but I don't think anybody knew that it was really that there, that there was a, th a lot of people just firmly believe the worst is behind us. We beat the flu. It's done. Yeah. Turns out there was still a little bit of it lurking and all it took was a little outbreak. And they just, I, I think if they played in Montreal, it probably would have been fine. Right. Um, yeah. I think they were just yeah. in the wrong place at the wrong time. Um, and I, you know, there's 5,000 people attending a game, even back then 5,000 people in the building. If one person has it and you know, as, as we're starting to figure out now, you cough, it, it spreads pretty far. Like it's, yep. <laughs> so if it's somebody in there coughing and, uh, you know, close enough to the ice or, you know, even, uh, let's just say a reporter had it or whatever. And he was talking to one of the players, like that's all it takes. Right. So do we know if anybody in the stands died? Uh, I, I have not found anything that indicates that that was the case. Yeah. I think that would be very hard to find out too, because very it, hard to find out. But who the hell also, knows? Yeah. Yeah, that's all. Like, no, nobody really would know that um, unless like somebody had a family member who would who would you know then like it's so maybe it's like a family story or something. Um, yeah. But I, I I think given the proximity that the players were in, sitting on the bench right next to each other, sweating. Yeah, yeah. Like if you've ever, I don't know if you've you know, I think you've been close enough to the action in hockey to see the way players are on the bench, just you know hawking loogies and spitting. Yeah, and yeah. Just, it, It's pretty disgusting. Um, yeah. And so, like, that's a perfect, and, you know, sharing water bottles, that kind of stuff, too, I'm sure. So, like, it's a perfect breeding ground for spreading a disease like that amongst the players uh, and, and the team staff. So, uh, they're probably sleeping at the same hotel, probably. Yeah, oh, absolutely. So many things that we know. Um, yeah. There's, there's no real way to know how they got it, other than uh, it, it, it affected them uh, enough to have caused the Stanley Cup not to be awarded. Um, yeah. So it's, uh, it's something else. <laughs> so just a note before we go on Bernie Morris too, when we, we were, you know, we, we, there's so many old players that we could have talked about and, uh, and we haven't talked about a bunch of them. And, and one of the ways that I was culling them is like, were they a star in more than one league? And if they weren't, then I, then I was like, nope, we'll, we'll leave them till later if we ever get back to them. And so while you were talking about him, I looked him up because I was like, how the hell do I not know who this guy is? And sure enough, he was on my list, but I cut him off because he was a star in the PCHA, but he wasn't a star in the WCHL. He actually he had one decent year in the WCHL, and then he didn't have some very good years. And then he had he played literally six games in the NHL when he was 34. Um, but like. He just, I, I guess, I don't know. I guess his like one year in the, he wasn't in the WCHL until he was in his thirties. So I guess when I was evaluating, I just, I didn't see enough points or something. I don't know, because I just like when you're talking about it, like how do we not, how do we miss this guy? But it's because you know 
he, he, unlike a lot of the players who jumped from league to league, he, he only jumped to the WCHL when the PCHA ended. And by that point, he was pretty old. Um, you know, this, this is a guy who was 20 in, in, in 1911. So um, he was older than some of the, a lot of the other players we've talked about, you know. So, uh, like, he would have been a very mature player by the time of this, this game, right, these games. Uh, he would have been like 29 or something, which is older than a lot of the stars who were in the who were in the in the finals. So anyway, just just that's that's why we overlooked him earlier, uh, because he uh, he only had the one good league, and usually we were focusing like Foyston, for example, had I think was a good player in all three leagues, or at least two of the three leagues he played in, um, as an example. So yeah, just a just a note on him. As to why yeah, we, we haven't talked about him. Yeah, well, I'd say, uh, you know, until you consider that, like, bonkers cup final that he has, it's like... Yeah. Um, it's, it's just so remarkable. You're like, whoa, this guy was incredible. Um, and then, you know, the, the the weird arrest thing to add to his career is definitely an interesting guy to talk about. Oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. And and maybe if we ever do, like, a, like who did we miss old, old guys who are, like, stars in only one league or whatever, we'll, uh, you know get back to him i don't know yeah also i didn't i didn't see his cup stats listed on the hockey reference page so that's another reason why i i missed it (laughs) Uh (laughs) aha otherwise i'm sure that would have jumped out at you it's like oh we should probably talk about this guy yeah yeah yeah. i'm I'm planning i'm kind of glad we saved it till now because it's uh i think it makes more sense in the context of this episode so yeah absolutely all right, so I, I, I think that's all we have to say about that, and I hope people uh, learned a little bit and were entertained for a little while and uh, hope everybody's staying healthy and staying safe. Yeah, me too. Um, yeah, I hope everyone is staying safe, and uh, I, I, I personally hope that, like, stuff like this um, and and generally all the, like, uh, not to get too off, far off track, but the stuff about, say, the 1956 non-pandemic, which is yeah. worth Googling if you don't know anything about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and things like this help us understand that what is currently happening as much as it's very economically painful and very hard for a lot of people is probably the best thing to do because yeah. the alternative is the kind of thing that happened back a hundred years ago, uh, which was, you know, one of the worst, I mean, certainly my knowledge, one of the worst things that has ever befallen humanity. So, yeah. yeah. All right, uh, so that's it for us. And uh, I realized the I think this is going to go up before the last episode we personally recorded. And so, just apologies to anyone who's confused. This is going to go out, I think, first because it's more current. But in in uh, part six ish, I think of the heart series, I I mistakenly say this is coming up next. Yeah. And I think this is going to go out before that. So. Apologies for the confusion, but we hadn't, we recorded them in different orders than they're going to go up. So I'm sure everyone's very outraged about that. Yes. Yes. And, I'm, and I'm I need sure to make a, people definitely noticed <laughs> until I made it, until I made a big deal about it. You know, <laughs> anyway, okay. thank you all for listening. Uh, uh, happy to, uh, glad to have, uh, you know, t- had this occasion to talk about it as much as the very, sobering uh thing to talk about it's still it's it's you know always good to go back and look at these interesting moments in history as much as this one is kind of painful but yeah absolutely all right we will see you next time take care